Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kiev, November 2004. The Orange Revolution erupted in the aftermath of Ukraine's presidential election, amid claims of massive corruption and fraud and voter intimidation. Thousands of protesters took to the streets daily and succeeded in having the results of the original election annulled. Now the events of the Orange Revolution are the backdrop to a new novel, Independence Square by A.D. Miller, who was The Economist's Moscow correspondent during that time. It tells the story of Simon Davy, once a senior British diplomat in Kiev, who loses everything in a lurid scandal. I have often asked myself if what I did in Kiev was wrong. No good deed goes unpunished, as the saying goes, but there is a prior problem in my view, namely how, in a world, a life so knotted and capricious, in which the consequences of one's own actions can so utterly contradict the intent, how, in such a world, can we ever know what the good deed is? In this episode of Historical Fiction, History Hits' Rob Weinberg has been talking to A.D. Miller about his novel, Independence Square. Historical Fiction. Andy, welcome to Historical Fiction. Thanks for having me. For Independence Square, you've reimagined the Orange Revolution, which took place in Kiev in 2004. Can you remind us what the events of that time actually were? Well, after Ukraine became independent from the Soviet Union in 1991... It was plagued by a lot of former Soviet countries by corruption and also by interference from the Kremlin. And in 2004, there was a presidential election in which one of the candidates, a guy called Viktor Yushchenko, promised to clean the country up and also to turn it away from Russia and towards the West. And the result was an utterly filthy election campaign, which included this guy, Viktor Yushchenko, being poisoned and horribly disfigured in mysterious circumstances. And when the votes were counted, the results were rigged and hundreds of thousands of people flooded into Kiev from all over the country to protest. And the epicentre of those protests was Independence Square. So as the Moscow correspondent for The Economist, did you actually witness those scenes yourself? Yes, I did. It was one of my first assignments, actually, after I was sent out by The Economist to Moscow to cover the events in Kiev, because at the time it felt like a very important harbinger of sort of the fate of the entire region. The Kremlin has always seen Ukraine as sort of part of Russia's patrimony and 
in a way not really in a proper independent country. And there was a great feeling at the time that democracy was spreading eastward and that if a proper democracy could be established in Ukraine, it might even reach as far as Moscow. You travelled widely across the Soviet Union during your period as the uh, Moscow correspondent for The Economist. Why in particular did you think this set of events would form the good basis for a novel? Well, it's partly because revolutions are such dramatic events and you know, inherently lend themselves to fiction. There's all the vertigo and euphoria and there's uncertainty, rumours swirling everywhere. Lots of people are very brave. You know, there's a skullduggery, there are spies, and people are forced to make instant decisions about how they're going to behave in extreme circumstances, about what kind of country they want to live in and, and what kind of person they want to be. And I thought actually that this particular event, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in, in 2004, was particularly resonant now, partly because of what's happened in Ukraine since, but more so because of what's happened here in the West. And one of the features of the revolution was thousands and thousands of people waving the flag of the European Union on Independence Square, which to them sort of connoted you know, the rule of law and progress and freedom from corruption, which from the perspective of today in London after Brexit is a rather kind of poignant memory. And the other thing I think that really echoes is the whole question of Russian meddling and election interference, because that was an election campaign that was scarred by you know smears and dark money and all kinds of dirty tricks of a kind that actually since then we've all become familiar with in the rest of the world, whether that's here in London or in the American presidential election. And there's a character in my novel, an oligarch called Misha Kovrin, who says towards the end of the book that Ukraine was like a sign to the future. And I think actually that's turned out to be true. So can you tell us a brief synopsis of what happens in the book and how these characters you've created play out against the backdrop of this revolution? Well, the book opens shortly after the rigged election in uh, November 2004, and it opens on Independence Square, where Simon Davey, who is a, a British diplomat, is trying to kind of broker a peaceful and democratic outcome with two other main characters in the story. One is this guy Misha Kovrin, who is a fictional oligarch, and the other is a young woman called Olesya Zarchenko, who is a sort of activist and an idealistic young Ukrainian. And the plot turns on the question that sort of haunts all big protests like that one, whether they're in Kiev or in Caracas or in Hong Kong, which is, is there going to be violence? Are the troops going to be mobilised to come into town and crack skulls or shoot people? But at the same time, there's a second strand in the novel which takes place in London, sort of 12 and a half years later, where we meet... Simon Davey, this diplomat again, and his life's completely fallen apart. He's lost everything. He's lost his job. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his family. His beloved daughter is entirely estranged, all because of something that happened that winter in Kiev. And in London, by chance, he runs into Alessia, the young woman who he and the reader met in Kiev. And he is convinced that she is responsible for his downfall. And he follows her with an aim to finding out why she did what he thinks she did. And in so doing, discovers that 
then the events of that winter and the events of Olesi's life and his own life turn out to be much more complicated than he thought they were. She does not see me, but I see her. She is coming down the steps in front of the Natural History Museum, near where they set up the ice rink in the winter. And I am climbing up them, out of the tube on my way to the park, carrying my drawstring swimming bag. I know immediately that it is her. It is both a surprise, a dislocation in time and place, a resurrection of the ancient past, and not a surprise in the least. On the contrary, I have been thinking about her for twelve and a half years. This encounter seems as much overdue as anomalous. It is as if my resentment has beamed her across Europe, conjured her to life, back into my life here in the shade of the museum's plane trees. She does not see me. You saw the protests happening in 2004 firsthand. They clearly made an impression on you. Were the characters in the book based on anyone that you met at that time? Well, they were very loosely. I mean, if you see uh, mass demonstrations of that kind, people kind of standing up for their freedom and their future, it, it does make an enormous impression, particularly if you come from, I guess, a relatively fortunate background, you know, like ours, where we live in a more or less stable and established democracy. So that kind of thing does make a big impression. There's one particular episode that I remember very vividly when a colleague and I marched up from Independence Square to Parliament, which is up a hill in Kiev from Independence Square. There were tens of thousands of people in this column and the poisoned and disfigured candidate was going up to Parliament to swear a symbolic oath of office, despite the fact that he had notionally lost the presidential election. And they marched into Parliament and we were just behind them, my colleague and I. And fortunately, somebody we knew in the presidential entourage spotted us and told the guards to let us in, which they did. And in we rushed up the stairs in the direction of the parliamentary chamber and the poisoned and disfigured candidate paused by a window to wave at tens of thousands of supporters outside. And there we were next to him and we weren't quite sure whether we ought to wave too, but it was a sort of Zelig-like moment that I remember very fondly. They're very vivid memories and the characters are based not exactly on any of the people I encountered, but people like Olesia, the young idealistic activist I mentioned, there were many, many people like her who were willing to risk you know, everything for the sake of building you know, a different kind of country in a better future. And Misha Kovrin, the oligarch, is, is invented, but there are people like him across the former Soviet Union, and they're almost all men, who became you know, richer than almost anybody in human history, in the, more or less the blink of an eye in the 1990s, sometimes in murky circumstances, and have continued since then to wield enormous influence over the affairs of their countries and in some cases our countries too. I mean these people are not confined by borders and you know as we've discovered in London with the influx of former Soviet billionaires they um, can play a huge role in, in our society as well. There's a particularly affecting image in the novel where a group of women protesters move slowly towards a barricade of police holding riot shields and insert roses into the perforations in the riot shields. Is that something that you witness? It is something very similar to that. I mean, not exactly as it happens in the book, but that was something that happened in real life. And it was very vivid, very 
affecting, very brave and very calculated. Because, you know, in revolutions, there's a the technology of revolution and there are lots of techniques. There are manuals written by people in sort of Serbia and elsewhere about how to conduct a peaceful revolution. And two arenas in which it plays out, at least two, one is the streets, uh, and of course there's all the diplomacy in backrooms, and the other is the evening news. And a scene like that is staged for the cameras, and in particular for the international audience, and it's designed to raise the costs of violence. So an embattled regime like the one in Kiev is constantly considering whether to use force against protesters. And they've lost the moral argument, they've fixed the election. The populace, particularly in the capital city, which is most important, has turned against them. And one of the only ways they can get out of it is by violence. And one of the key aims of protesters in that situation is to make violence too costly a response. And so an event like that, where uh, it's clear as far as international viewers are concerned, on the one hand, you have men behind a barricade wearing riot gear and carrying huge shields and truncheons. On the other hand, you have a bunch of very young women bravely wielding roses. Puts the moral contest in very stark visual terms. It's almost like that image of Tiananmen Square, isn't it? With the one protester in front of the tank. It becomes a kind of iconic image for the whole revolution. Yes, it was. And another key aspect of it, of course, is the morale of the protesters. So in a situation like that, it was freezing cold, below freezing. There are hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, many of them sleeping in tents, which have been pitched around central Kiev. And a big question for the organisers of the revolution was, can we keep our people on the streets long enough for us to win. And by win, I mean winning the courts, winning the diplomatic arena and get the rigged election result cancelled. And of course, the incumbent regime is backing on the fact that people are going to get so cold they're going to go home. And one of the things that's required to keep the momentum going is stunts or manoeuvres like this, make people feel that they have accomplished something, whether that's marching up to parliament, marching to the presidential administration and putting roses into the perforations of riot shields in the way that's described in this episode, but it's vitally important that to keep the people on your side believing that they're achieving something, even when the situation can seem to be a kind of stalemate. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Simon in your book is a well-travelled diplomat, but he seems quite naive, I think, to what is really going on. 
And, and you have some barely informed journalists rocking up in Kiev to cover the protests too, interested in those kinds of images, I guess. Was that your experience, that the complexities of the situation were really outside most people's comprehension, including the diplomats and the press? Were the protesters naive to think that they could actually change anything? Uh, I don't think the protesters were naive. I think they were, by and large, extremely brave and determined and a little bit desperate because they felt that this was you know, their one big opportunity in the short history of their independent country to change the direction in which it was going. It turned out not to be the case in more than one way. But that's what they felt. And I think to the extent they put their faith in the people on the stage, you know, the politicians, to change the country, perhaps they were naive and perhaps people like me who were reporting on those events were naive too. But to the extent they put their faith in themselves, you know, the people in the crowd to, you know, have the courage of their convictions and the gumption to shiver in the snow for a month to achieve a different outcome, then I think they were vindicated. Simon is kind of, I wouldn't say he's naive exactly. I mean, he's aware of some of the sort of tricks and shenanigans that go on. He knows his phone is being bugged and he at one point suspects he's being followed. And he kind of knows what the stakes are and what the dangers are. But I think he doesn't quite get how deep the sort of nexus of money and power goes and quite how determined the people you know who have the money and the power are to hang on to them and the lengths they're willing to go to to achieve that he has a little bit of a blind spot there the journalism point is definitely true i mean there's a funny thing i think i mentioned it in the book where the more prominent a news story becomes there's a big risk that the commentary becomes less and less informed because there's a moment you can tell something sort of snaps as a tipping point when the news anchors get shipped out to stand in an overcoat and present the news, do their bits to camera, which they did on the balcony of a hotel above Independence Square. And then you have all the kind of special correspondents and big name people coming out who typically, of course, know much less than the foreign correspondents, who in turn often know less than the indigenous reporters. So there's a strange kind of inverse correlation between the prominence of a news story and the sort of expertise that news organisations bring to bear on it. Without giving any spoilers, the book reveals that Alessia's life has been tough since the protests. Well, it was tough before the protests, but that sense of optimism that was once there has kind of vanished do you feel that that generation who you witnessed rising up have suffered a great disappointment since? Well, they suffered disappointments before and since, as you rightly say. I mean, one of the things the book sort of mentions is the extent of corruption in societies like that one, which is kind of difficult for us living in the West really to kind of get our heads around because we tend to think of corruption as something that happens sort of on the margins of society. It's a bad thing. Yes, you know, it might happen, but the people involved might be punished in any case. It's not sort of what happens on a day-to-day -day basis to us. But if you live in a country like Ukraine, sort of the reverse is true, or indeed Russia. There's a kind of cradle-to-grave system of corruption there where, and certainly in the time the novel is set, you're constantly being extorted for bribes by all kinds of officials, uh, whether it's traffic cops inventing imaginary infractions or... Schools and universities requiring bribes so you can pass your exams or gain admission. So Alessia's grown up with 
those experiences. In particular, she's got a brother in the book who is conscripted into the army and has a terrible time there. And that's also a huge racket where anyone who can afford to bribe their way out of conscription by and large does so. And, and their family isn't wealthy enough to do that. And then, as you say, she puts it all on the line in the course of this revolution, which subsequently does not turn out to achieve the results that she and many millions of other people hoped for. And the result was another revolution, actually, just under a decade later, which turned out to be much bloodier and much more traumatic even than the first one, which itself was then followed by Russia invading Ukraine, annexing the Crimean Peninsula, which is part of the country on the Black Sea, and a war in eastern Ukraine, which is ongoing still, in which more than 10,000 people have been killed. So it has been, for people of that generation, a fantastically disappointing and hard time. But I was in Kiev fairly recently, and there's still a lot of idealism there. And still people believe that they can get to where they want to be. It's taken them two revolutions, and they're still not there yet, both in the terms of being free from... Russian interference and also free from corruption, which is as big a threat really to the future of the country as the Kremlin is. And so there's this sort of life or death struggle still going on really, I think, between you know, the idealism of characters like the young woman Alessia in my story and these big kind of countervailing forces of corruption and Russian interference. Can we talk a little bit about the actual craft of writing a novel? How do you go about plotting a novel like this? What's your process? Well, in this case, I have this double time frame, which I really wanted to have because I wanted the reader to be able to inhabit the scenes in Kiev when so much seems to be at stake and experience the sort of exhilaration of that moment and at the same time have this sort of tragic perspective of viewing those events from 13 years later when so much has happened both to the characters you know, and to the country involved. Having that double time frame you know, makes the plotting all the more difficult actually because there's a challenge about what to reveal, and what to conceal, when to make clear the interaction between the two plots. And in particular, if you have a first person narrator, so some of the book is narrated by Simon, the disgraced diplomat whose own sort of backstory turns out to be a bit murkier than it first appears and you have the challenge then of how to convey things to the reader that the narrator can't see so dramatic irony which is another thing you have to kind of weave into the plotting when I plan my books I, I have two kinds of structure that I have in mind one is to do with the plot and information the other is a kind of emotional structure which is what you want readers to be feeling at any given moment in the book. So you want to try to kind of modulate the reading experience between you know, different kinds of enjoyment, excitement and insight and all those kind of things that you try and do in a novel. So there's two, in my mind, there's always two structures. There's a sort of the skeleton, you know, the architecture of the plot, and then there's the kind of emotional structure. Yeah, I noticed you went from a kind of third person narrative about the revolution to the first-person narrative from Simon, and then a first-person narrative from Alessia as well. It unfolds the story in different ways, as different people have understood it. A secret means power, as everybody knows. But power for who? With a single secret, it is clear there can be more than one answer. 
Here, in this room, I know something Simon does not. A secret he badly wants. And so, although he followed me, though he is angry and has a right to be, between us, while I keep it, I have the power. Because I know what happened that night on Independent Square. At the same time, it matters who the secret touches. It matters who owns it. If you know the secret of an influential man, a rich man, a ruthless man, you are not powerful, but the opposite. Such a secret is like a debt you cannot pay. To put it another way, between the torturer who wants the secret and the victim who hides it, where does the power lie? Who is the subject and who is the object? I felt it was important to have Alessia's voice, I had to have a woman's voice, uh, apart from anything else, on the story because actually gender politics are actually kind of an important part of the story. This book is about these big kind of public convulsions, but it's also about the ordinary business of people's lives and you know, workplace dramas and love lives, all the stuff that actually always goes on at the same time as these big headline news events. And so I wanted to convey all that stuff from her perspective as well as from Simon's perspective. One of the reviews I've read of the book says it's the kind of novel Graham Greene might have written if he was alive today, especially in the way you give these insights into diplomacy, political negotiations, alongside the very human emotions and dilemmas that you've been talking about. And there are some very memorable minor characters that pop in and out. Is Graham Greene someone that's influenced you or other thriller writers? Well, I, I, it's, a, it's a fantastically flattering comparison. I mean, he is a um, great sort of master, Graham Greene, at turning the news or turning something you might call journalism into fiction, into art. And I do admire his writing in books like The Quiet American or The Comedians or Our Man in Havana. He takes these events that you might feel that you're familiar with and conveys a different kind of truth about them, about the kind of people who are involved in them. And that means sort of nuanced motivations and unintended consequences and all the kind of mess of real life that is just as true as the sort of bare facts that you might read in a newspaper. I do admire his novels very much and obviously it's extremely flattering that that analogy was made. Recently, Ukraine returned to the news because of the impeachment hearings against President Trump. Do you think Ukraine is a country that is much more important than we give it credit for? Ukraine actually means borderland, and it has always been on the border between East and West, and even now is kind of contested territory between the Kremlin and the West, or what's left of the West. And also, within the country itself, there are people who lean towards Russia and people who consider themselves European and you know, aspire to join the EU and NATO and all of that. But a, a big part of why I think Ukraine matters to the world is kind of not so much all that geopolitics stuff as corruption. And corruption is something that doesn't really obey borders. So it's, it's actually a poor country on a per capita basis. But 
there's natural resources there and there are some very, very, very rich and unscrupulous people. And they conscript allies from abroad, political allies or business allies. And, you know, their money attracts equally unscrupulous people from, you know, here in America and all over. And they then send out scandal and mess, as we've seen in the case of the impeachment. So when you do have terrible governance and corruption on that scale, it's liable to have an impact beyond the borders of the country. Do you think that your experience as a correspondent in Moscow will continue to inspire more novels? Do you have anything else up your sleeve? I hope so. I mean, publishing a book is a bit like having a child. You don't immediately, at least I don't immediately, feel I've got the wherewithal to do another one. I'm thinking about some ideas. I mean, it is such a fascinating part of the world, and partly because of these fundamental moral questions that we've been talking about, that if you live in a, a place that's badly ruled and suffers from the kind of corruption that Russia does, then ordinary people are constantly being forced to make tough choices, moral choices, whether to pay the bribe, whether to go to the protest, whether to turn up to vote for the autocrat. And those kinds of moral challenges are at the heart of a lot of good fiction. It's just a place that lends itself to storytelling. It's one of the reasons why so many the world's greatest novels have come from that part of the world. So I hope and expect to do another story, perhaps set in Ukraine, perhaps in Russia, or perhaps in the Caucasus. I've got a few ideas kind of knocking around, but I haven't embarked on another project yet. Do you enjoy the process? I do like writing. It's, it's, writing novels is hard. It's a challenge. But very occasionally you feel you've set down a passage or a bit of dialogue or set a scene in a way that rings true, and that is, can be very rewarding. You likened it to having a child. Do you feel that once the novel's out, you still have a kind of uh, responsibility towards it or a relationship to it? Or unlike having a child, you move on and you start thinking about the next thing? I guess it's not exactly like a child. A friend of mine who writes books said that a bad review is a bit like if you went to your child's nativity play and somebody stood up in the audience and said, that's not a very good child. (laughs) It's not quite as bad as that. (laughs) But there is, I mean, the truth is you don't get to sit down with your reviewers, let alone your regular readers, and tell them what to think about your book. So at a certain point, you do have to kind of release it into the world and let it kind of fend for itself. So that is a bit different from a child. Uh, But I don't think you stop caring about it, because after all, you do invest quite a lot of your time on Earth and writing a novel. And in my case, and I think most cases, you do that because you think it's a story worth telling that you hope people will enjoy and maybe even learn something from. A.D. Miller, thank you very much for joining us. Historical Fiction Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.